Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Last week, my writing partner, Barbara, posted a blog post on Sober and Unashamed, and it was called Five times my husband's substance abuse counselor was wrong, and one time she was right. Which is a long title. Yes. But I like it. Yes. I especially like it because there's numbers in it. There's some kind of, you know, like research that's been done that says that when you put numbers in in the titles of things, they are clicked on more often. Hmm. So it's like clickbait without being clickbaity. Like it's a legit article about five times... The woman was wrong, and the one time she was right. But well, that so, is intriguing, though. Like, yeah, makes you wonder. Like you've got a it? you've got a counselor who was wrong five times. Yeah, but one time you were right. Which so are you very... more? Which are you more intrigued about? The five times she was wrong, or the one time she was right? Oh, wow, I think because of it being compared to one another, of course, both intrigue me. But I am. I think that I was more curious about the wrongs because <laughs> yeah. I think I'm just a negative kind of pessimistic and want to catch people but well if you want to know about the five times she was wrong and some of them are like blood boilingly wrong Mm -hmm. some of them are really frustrating if you want to know about that you'll just have to read the article on sober and unashamed.com it was from last week and uh yeah that's the title barbara wrote it it's really great But we will talk about one of the five things, because it's all I can think about, and it's going to be our topic for the podcast today. I'm, I think I know which one you're going to talk about. Okay, guess, but, but if you guess wrong, then we're, then you're giving away one, and then people will only, and then we'll talk about the real one, and then people will only be, have mysteries on three. And then they could just, like, if I give it away right away, then they don't have to listen to the rest of the podcast too, right? No. Is that, is that what you're hoping I don't do? That's our marketing director, Sherry, talking (laughs) over there. No. No, I'll tell you the one that got my, I mean, they're, all of them made me upset. But this was for substance abuse. Yeah, this person In the is most a, severe, like, they need to be healthy. And this person's a therapist, but she specializes in substance abuse yes. counseling. So she's got extra letters after her name because of her substance abuse expertise. Yes. What made your blood boil the most? That medical marijuana would cure his anxiety. Oh, yeah, we are giving away the next one because that is not the topic. But you're right. Oh. That is blood-boilingly awful. Oh, yes. I mean, from what we've learned about how the repair of the brain chemistry, the neurotransmitters that are responsible for pleasure, how the addiction to alcohol just transfers right over to the addiction to marijuana and just keeps trucking down the same road, and there's it's impossible to heal from addiction when you just transfer it from alcohol to marijuana. Oh, that is so oh, but upsetting. The person was in there for substance abuse. It wasn't just alcohol. Right. I mean, that was the main abusive um, toxin that he It'd took like in. It's like going, in, also, going like, to the hospital for heroin, and they're like, well, what we're going to do is we're going to give you some methamphetamine. <laughs> yeah. This is how we'll cure you. Or it's medical marijuana, because, you know, it cures everything. Oh, yeah, medical marijuana <laughs> is different. There's no THC in that. Yeah, it's for everything. Yeah. That was the one that... That's worked. like antibiotic ointment <laughs> for alcoholics. God. And so many people make that 
transition, transition to like, oh, well, I'm not drinking. I'm just smoking pot now because it's good for me. And I don't want to call, I don't ever want to insult our listeners, but you do. You get to the point where you're like, oh my God, did you really think that was going to work? Makes you yeah. kind of giggle at people a just little bit. Transferring your addiction. But anyhow, sorry. So I'm that's, sorry, I guess. That was one correctly. of the five times that Barbara's husband's Substance. Substance abuse counselor was wrong, but it's not the one that we want to talk about. The one that we want to talk about today was when the substance abuse counselor basically blamed her husband's alcoholism on Barbara. Mm-hmm. If Barbara was only nicer or more sexually intimate or, you know, the, the, at some point in the article she talks about how her husband suggested that she get some more tattoos because that'd be really sexy. And it just so happens that the substance abuse counselor had lots of tattoos. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you got to read the article. Yes. Oh, maybe we should mention in the article it talks about the hodgepodge uh, office. So it didn't look professional at all. Yeah, well, that's at the beginning of the article. <laughs> and I was laughing at yeah. that. I was like, oh, I know that I, we know Barbara's story a little bit. So, you know, I knew that little piece. But I was like, oh, that should be a red flag. By the end of the article, she's really empathizing with the substance abuse counselor, which is just amazing after all right. these mistakes this woman made that Barbara has a big enough heart to, you know, feel for her. But this is a very, con- it's not common. Well, I don't know if it's common or not for substance abuse counselors to blame a person's alcoholism on their spouse. I doubt that that's common. I hope and pray that that's not common. But the the idea that the alcoholism some way, somehow gets blamed on the spouse, that is very common. Certainly it happens by the gaslighting alcoholic. You know, I, I did it to you. I, I blamed my alcoholism on you. And I think it's it's somewhat naturally occurring in the spouse themselves who wonders, gosh, is it all my nagging that's causing my husband to be an alcoholic? But it's just 100% wrong. Like, I don't think there are any cases where you could actually pin the alcoholism of a person on the person that supposedly loves them the most. No matter how aggravated that person has become over time, it's still not their fault. It's still not the loved one's fault that, that you become an alcoholic. And we're going to talk about that. And this this one really gets gets my blood boiling. So uh, I'll probably get pretty fired up a few times in this. Before we get into you know the reasons why that is just bullshit, which that's that was the, the alternative title for this episode. The real title that we went with is, Is My Husband's Alcoholism My Fault? But the... The, the subtitle that I wanted to use was, this is just bullshit, because that's how, <laughs> how angry I feel about it. But before we get to the reasons, I want to talk about uh, somebody that you and I are, are getting closer and closer to, someone in our Echoes of Recovery group that we've, we've known for a few months now and really, like I said, grown close to, someone we really respect and admire, and we're, we're hoping that she's getting the strength through participation in the group, not just from us, but from the stories of other people in Echoes of Recovery to make good decisions for her health and the health of her children. But her husband's go-to, especially right now, is to blame his drinking on her. If you weren't such a bitch, if you weren't such a nag, if you would show me grace, that's a 
a mm. term that he uses from what we hear quite often. If you would just show me some grace when I would slip, I wouldn't drink more. So he'll, he'll, he'll in his attempt at sobriety, have a slip and drink. And then because she detaches and sticks to her boundary and says that's not acceptable, that's not what we've agreed to, then he'll throw up in her face, well, if you would just coddle me a little bit. He doesn't say coddle. If you would just show me some grace, then I could get over this. But since you won't, I'm going to drink again this night and I'm going to drink again tomorrow night. And so this this one day slip turns into a three or four day bender. And in his mind, he's blaming it completely on her. And I'm here to tell you that I remember what that was like. There were so many times when I drank because I was mad at you, Sherry. And it was your fault in my head. I I might have started out drinking for celebration because it was Saturday and we were going to a barbecue. And then I overdid it. And you got frustrated. And as soon as you expressed that frustration, you didn't even have to say any words. But as soon as I could see in your face that you were disappointed in me, now, oh, it's your fault. And it, it was it was like releasing the shackles. So here I am. I'm trying not to drink too much. I'm trying to keep it in control. I'm trying to be a moderate drinker. Oh, I had I had a couple too many. And then as soon as I can see you're frustrated, that was like sweet release for me to say, oh, well, my wife's a bitch, so all the rules are gone. I can drink all I want now. It's her fault. She made me do it. Do you remember any of those kind of interactions? Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I... Yeah, it could be a look or sometimes I remember one time it wasn't even like a look and I was talking to people. You just, I remember you said in your drunkenness was like, I just knew you were going to be unhappy. I should just feel it. And I was like, I was trying to ignore you and pretend that it was fine for me because you weren't acting inappropriately. You were just, I just knew that you had drank too much. So. Well, in my defense and I'm not going to defend my alcoholic self very much here but just like it's a universalism it's a just a well-known fact that the loved ones of alcoholics can tell when that alcoholic has been drinking they we all have tells what mine is that I push my forehead forward is that right yeah. like lean into oh, the lean, in. lean into everything it's like, the like top I got of a tailwind all of a sudden <laughs> I do have a big bulbous well, head. Well, it's not even like it probably gets kind of heavy. So it'd be like if you were tall and you were looking over at people, sort of like lurch. But so I take my five nine and I make your, it about a five four. So your my head, head leans down. Tall forehead leans forward. You have a, a lot bit. of forehead. It leans forward a little bit. Yeah. So that's <laughs> my tell, and some facial expressions too, right? Oh, um, yeah. Your eyes. You like widen your eyes as you're forehead drops. The other tell is that I've got a, a beer glass permanently affixed <laughs> to my hand because I was never one to really hide my drinking. I mean, I would hide how much, but um, you let me you know. Could probably you, yeah. tell I was drinking because I was holding <laughs> a beer, a beer, at least a beer. Remember when we came back from Ireland and I decided I was going to double fist? I was going to have a whiskey and a beer going together oh, that was, at the that same was time. Smart. Yeah, that was smart. Well, that's the way they do it in Ireland. Yeah, well, Turns it out was... there's some alcoholics <laughs> over there. <laughs> but I remember coming home and 
we went out with friends. It was before we had kids. We were in Chicago. We lived in Chicago. We went out with some so friends. We, some heavy drinking friends. Yes. My college buddies. And the, the, I ordered a whiskey and a beer together. And they looked like... You know what's a terrifying feeling? Yes, when some right. really heavy drinkers look at you like, oh my God, he what are you doing? crossed the line. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I didn't do that for very long. It was expensive, too. It was very expensive. So my tell is to be... Big forehead and drinking, you can tell that I'm drinking when those things are happening. Tipping forehead. But in my, again, defense, and I'm not going to defend my alcoholic self very much, it's pretty easy to tell when you're frustrated or disappointed or just downright angry. And so it wasn't hard for me to figure out, oh, she's pissed. So now it's everything's her fault. So if I drink too much or if I drink too much again two nights in a row, it's not my fault. Look what I have to live with. This intolerable person. So prude. This one? He's turned into a prude. Yeah, well, eventually, I did think that. I thought, the problem isn't that I drink too much. It's that you don't drink enough. Another common fallacy among alcoholic relationships. That the, uh, the alcoholic thinks that the problem is that their mm-hmm. spouse doesn't drink enough. So... Yeah, so this this person that we care dearly about, you know, her husband is pretty constantly, it sounds like, pretty consistently turning this on her and saying, if you would just show me some grace, I could beat this thing. Basically, you know, looking for coddling, looking to be, what's the, what's the word? Um, Mothered. Yeah, but what's the word in alcoholism terms, terminology? You know, like teetotaler and falling off the wagon. What's the word? Enabled. Enabled. Enabling. Yeah. Yeah. That word doesn't bother me as much as some of the... Because I was like... Recovery lingo does. So... Yeah. Basically, here, um, wife, you have to enable me and make it possible so that I can keep drinking and feeling sorry for myself. And if you don't, then all of my drinking is your fault. What a terrible position to put someone in. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is someone that has experience dealing with alcoholics. This is sadly not her first go around with having alcoholics in her life. And, you know, but he, he's, he's so convincing that, um, and I, I don't think she fully believes it. I don't think she believes it at all at this point, but it's something that she has had to work herself away from this concept that his drinking is her fault. She's had to pull away from that over time and learning and experience. And it's just, it, it really, really gets me angry. So here are the reasons that we think that this idea that a, the husband's alcoholism is the wife's fault, or I should say the, the alcoholic's alcoholism is the spouse's fault. It can go either direction, um, gender wise, but here are the reasons that we think that is just total bullshit. So I, like, like we said, I said many times Sherry, it's your it's your bitchiness that makes me drink. But here's the thing. This is one of those chicken or the egg situations. What is it that made you kind of bitchy? How about we say that what made me angry? You don't hurt. like that word. Yeah. Okay. What is it that I mean that you can say that's what you thought, you know, that you were thinking. You can use that word, but I don't think I was necessarily bitchy. Oh, you're trying to defend your behavior? I'm saying I was hurt. You were, for sure. And annoyed, frustrated, and disappointed. Yes. 
And so why did I turn, like, so sour? Why was I so turned off by drinking? And, why was I so and, turned off by pretty, you? And pretty ornery. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So why were you those things? Well, because you were an idiot when you were drinking. <laughs> well, that's not what I... Because yeah. you were drinking. Because I was drinking. You were drinking to, you know, excess whenever you had it, you know, available to you most of the time. Well, that's what I mean. It's a chicken or the egg thing. But it, but it, there's no mystery. There is a mystery about which came first, the chicken or the egg. There's no mystery here. I drank too much. You got ornery. And and then I would blame my drinking too much on your orneriness. It's, it's not a mystery like the chicken or the egg. It's easy to figure out and well-defined. The alcohol changes both people in an alcoholic relationship. It changes the alcoholic into someone who's dependent on the alcohol and gets noisy and obnoxious, says things they'll regret, has mood swings. You know, the list could go on for the next three hours of the things that alcohol does to the alcoholic. But the alcohol changes the loved one, too. The alcohol changes the spouse as well. It made you ornery, you know, constantly being let down, constantly being deceived. Like I said, I didn't necessarily hide the fact that I was drinking, but I hid how much I was drinking. Or I would agree with you. Oh, yeah, we're going to so-and-so's house. I'll just have a couple. And then six beers later, you know, I, oh, well, yeah, did I really have to say, oh, I, you know, it wasn't like an outright lie, but it was definitely deceit and awful. I'm not defending it. But it's that kind of behavior and, and calling you nasty names when I got really drunk and, you know, going from jovial at a party in front of other people and then coming home and being this sad sack, depressed, sullen person who's, by the way, stopped drinking beer and is now drinking vodka. Those things go well. You went from celebratory mm -hmm. to sad and you went from beer to vodka. Wow, this is going to be a fun night. And then we wonder, we actually wonder, or some people actually wonder, what is it that's creating this Dependence on alcohol. Maybe it's the nastiness of the spouse. Well, where did the nastiness of the spouse come from? It came from the alcohol. Mm -hmm. Told you I was going to get a little worked up about yeah, this Yeah, I was just saying. I didn't know you had a soapbox over there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this, this, one, this one fires me up. And, you know, well, right, it's, it's right. largely because I did all of this stuff. I did all of this. I blamed my alcoholism on you. Um, and now I look back on that with a huge amount of regret and I just feel like it's part of my mission in life not to let people buy that bullshit. And that's why I want, you know, the conversation about alcoholism to be more out in the open and prevalent, not just so that alcoholics can, we alcoholics can get more kind of pity or sorrow pointed in our direction. I want people to understand if an alcoholic is blaming their drinking on you, that's bullshit. I don't care what the situation is. I don't care how thorny and prickly you are as a normal, natural human being when alcohol isn't there. It's still bullshit. It is not your fault right. that someone you else is not. You're in control of yourself. Sherry, that's perfect. That is one of these on my list. That might be next. Let's talk about it next. You have to be in control of yourself. You have to be responsible for your own feelings. Yeah. And... I mean, I know that people can say things that, you know, trigger you or inspire you or hurt you or sadden you mm -hmm. or elate you, but you are hopefully an adult if you're an alcoholic and drinking or married. 
or in a serious relationship, but you are still an adult and you are responsible for your own actions and your own behavior and your own feelings and how you respond to that. Those alcoholic baby marriages are a lot of fun, though. <laughs> they always have really good buffets at those things. At their weddings? Is at the alcoholic talking? baby marriages. Yes, so yes, you're an adult. I just stopped listening when you said alcoholic baby. I just was like, nope, I'm not listening anymore. Yes, you are an adult. You're right, and you have to be responsible for yourself. But here's the thing. When, you, when your mind is warped by alcoholism... You are in a very weak place from a self-esteem standpoint. I have been going on and on lately in writing and talking about how the level of self-esteem a person has really, I believe, determines their dependence or non-dependence on alcohol or some kind of substance, some kind of addiction. If you don't feel good about yourself, you need something to medicate that. And so if you don't feel good about yourself and you're medicating with alcohol... You also don't have enough, you know, gumption and and belief in yourself to con- to to believe that you control your own destiny. So that's where this idea that you're a nasty person, spouse, so you are responsible for my alcoholism. That's where that comes into play because you, at that point, you're just not really taking responsibility for much of anything, you know, in your life. Mm-hmm. We have to be in control of ourselves. And when we drink too much, we're just not in control. It's not just about drunk driving, which is terrible. Drunk driving is terrible. But it's not just about being in control of our reflexes behind the wheel of an automobile. It's about being in control of our own destiny by, you know, managing the emotions that come our way and setting our own moods. It's a big deal. So I'm glad you brought that part up. Here's another thing. Another reason that this whole idea that a spouse can be responsible for an alcoholic's alcoholism is total bullshit. We as alcoholics, we deflect and deny the problems in our lives. Now, in our case, Sherry, the biggest problem was the deterioration of our relationship. I was fortunate to not have experienced a DUI or a car accident or or, you know, financial collapse or being fired. So for us, the biggest problem in our lives was that we couldn't get along and our relationship was a mess and our marriage was failing. And so when you look at and analyze why that is happening, and in my case, as a huge overanalyzer who just can't stop analyzing things all the time, I had to, I had to, when I was in active alcoholism, I had to deflect the blame for the failing relationship away from myself and away from the alcohol. I had to deny that I was drinking too much and I had to push that blame onto you. I had to. And the reason I say I had to is because if I didn't do that, I would have been forced to look within and say, okay, if this is my fault, what could possibly be causing this? And the glaring thing, you know, the neon light flashing over my head would have been, It's the drinking. If I was going to blame myself for our relationship failures, I would have had to say, oh, clearly this is the alcohol is the problem. And because I was for a long period of time, you know, a a decade of active addiction and longer, if we just talk about heavy drinking for many, many years, I was so in love with alcohol and it was so part of my persona and I just, it was my favorite pastime. My favorite thing to do was to drink. 
the idea of removing alcohol from my life was it was inconceivable. I, I and that's not an exaggeration. I I would have rather lost a limb at times than stop drinking alcohol. And so it had to be your fault. It absolutely had to be because if it was my fault, I'd have to quit, and that was not an option. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about gaslighting, you know, one of the things when we work with the loved ones of alcoholics, you know. I think it's really easy to think your spouse is just like this evil devil child person because they are lying and manipulating and gaslighting the way they are. I'm here to tell you, in my case, and I think in most cases, you're not this evil person. It's it's a defense mechanism. I've got to get the blame shifted off of me because I'm not mentally capable of considering sobriety at this point. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't do it to you. I didn't blame you for all the problems in our relationship because I hated you. Far from it. I loved you. I always loved you. I never wavered in how much I loved you. Even when you pretty much hated me, I didn't waver. It wasn't that. And it wasn't that I was mean and it wasn't that I you know, wanted to punish you. It was that I can't take this on me because then I'll have to quit. And so the last thing we're trying to do with this podcast episode is to convince people to go and, you know, give your alcoholic a big, warm, loving hug and tell them, it's okay that you blame me and call me a bitch. It's okay. I know that you don't mean it. We're, like, we're not trying to defend the alcoholic, but I think it is helpful to explain it because, I mean, did, did you ever think that I was just this mean, awful person or did you think I was stupid and confused or both? Both. Both, okay. Yes, I thought... I did think for the longest time, like, how did I, like, miss this? I mean, I know that I am ornery. I know that I speak my mind. I know that I can't hold my tongue and my facial expressions. It's so reactive. I can't fake it. I can't fake something if I'm bothered by something. Right. So I know that that is a problem. But I always would, like, question because that's something you always said that... You liked about me that I was spunky and I would be reactive and I wasn't fake and I would tell it like it is, you know, but I also had a really sensitive, caring side. And so I, and I was like, I just don't know how I missed that about you and that I was just still being the person that I thought you liked. So I thought, gosh, I'd never imagined that Matt could be um, rude and hateful and I know that, like, during arguments, there was a lot of triggering um, and a lot of nasty words expressed. But sometimes I would just be flabbergasted because I feel like out of nowhere there would just come a comment. And I was like, gosh, it just he didn't seem like that kind of person when we first met. And I thought it had to somehow be the alcohol. But I also thought, but for a long time I thought, Alcohol was your truth serum. And I thought you really were just, that's how you felt. That's what you thought. That's what you wanted to say. Because I didn't understand the the grasp that alcohol has and how it changes you. I mean, it's not like I was unaware of alcohol being an intoxicant and, you know, acting like an idiot when you're drunk. Because I've had many of times where I've acted like an idiot when I was drunk. But I just thought, eh. So one of the one of the things that you know is on this list because it kind of proves that this idea that the 
nasty loved one is what creates or perpetuates the alcoholism in the alcoholic, proves that that's just total bullshit, is what happens in long-term sobriety. And so that's what I want to ask you about next. If you really thought, gosh, you know, you didn't understand the idea that I'm trying to deflect the blame and that this is a defense mechanism and that I'm not doing this to intentionally be evil. If you, you know, if you thought I was doing it to intentionally be evil, basically, was it a relief in long-term sobriety to see that I kind of stopped that behavior? Was it a relief to say, oh, you know, my husband is far from faultless. He's got lots of flaws, but he's not a complete jerk. He's not a mean-hearted person. Yes. Do you like how I fished for a compliment there? Yes. I didn't mean Filled to in that. all the blanks. But yes. Yes. I was very happy. At first, I thought that taking the alcohol away just was able to allow you to respond or react or say something with a more thoughtful and kinder heart. I didn't necessarily think that you were, um, like when, when you would say something that was mean when you were drinking and I thought it was a truth serum. I thought, well, at least it's taking that, you know, just blurting something out. At least he's now able to pause, react, think about what he's going to say and say it in a nicer way. I still thought there were some things that there was, I still thought there was an underlying little bit of meanness. You still thought it was evil and just the truth serum wasn't there. Yeah. Yeah. So I was, in the beginning, I was a little. But what about now? Do you think that now? No. No. So in like long, long term sobriety. Yes. I don't think that at all. Like I can't even, I can't, I, I can't even imagine like you saying something really hateful and mean. Isn't it interesting now when we hear through, you know, just people who write to us or through Echoes of Recovery, when we hear people describe really, really bad alcoholic evenings that they've had and the nasty, nasty, horrible things that their spouse is saying to them. I mean, it boils my blood now and... Um, makes me so angry at that person and makes me hurt so bad for both of them, both people in the relationship. But it's been long enough now that I have to remind myself, oh, Matt, you used to say stuff like that too. Yeah, we used to have those kind of nights. Yeah. And it does seem so far, I mean, it is in the past, but it almost seems like in a different lifetime. Yeah. Sometimes it's hard to remember. But that's a good sign because it's not like... It's not like alcohol is a truth serum and in sobriety I just have a more skill in holding back my true yeah. feelings. Those true feelings don't exist. Yeah, I thought you were able to develop your skill for holding your tongue yeah. and think about what was coming out. And now I just don't believe that you would ever say anything like that. Well, he, here's the really good news. <clears throat> the loved ones of alcoholics, they heal too in long-term sobriety. So... Where I still am very attracted to your spunkiness and the fact that if, you know, you told me a story earlier this week about flipping off an old lady on a bicycle. You did. You can't I, deny it. I did. I did. I was frustrated. And I so did. while I still admire your spunkiness, um, you are no longer, you know, ornery to me. You are no longer... 
I mean, yeah, I can still tell when you're frustrated and I can see on your face when you've had enough of whatever you're dealing with. <coughs> Pardon me. But, um, you know, you're not on the edge of like launching an attack on me at any moment the way you were back then. So the point is, because alcohol is what made you like that. Because I'm not hurting. Not because I'm you not drank disapp- so much alcohol, but because I drank so much alcohol, it made you like that. Right. Because I'm not hurting. I'm not disappointed. I'm not fearful. That's right. So the alcohol changes people, not just the alcoholic, but the loved one as well. And when you see that reverse itself in sobriety, that's another reason it's just complete bullshit to believe that a spouse's bitchiness is what creates and perpetuates the alcoholism in the drinker. It's not, because the bitchiness goes away in sobriety, too. Yeah. It does. Yeah. I just... Takes a long time. I'm just glad that the woman that I flipped off recently, the old woman on the bicycle... Yeah, the old lady it didn't with happen walker like, and the bicycle. <laughs> no walker. Didn't happen, like, seven years ago after a fight, because I probably would have... Run her over. No, I wouldn't have run her over. I would have stopped and verbally chastised her as well as... Because you had a lot of venom in you. Because I had venom in me. Yeah. yeah. Because of the pain and hurt. and Yeah. Needless to say, I wasn't speeding. Oh. So she didn't need to tell me to slow down. I knew down. you were going to defend yourself. Well, I don't want people thinking <laughs> I just randomly go out flipping the bird at old ladies on bicycles. But I wasn't You're speeding. You're kind of a badass. That would be kind of I a good... I wasn't speeding. Maybe we should change the picture we use for the podcast to you just double barrel. Double barrel Sherry. <laughs> no, I'm sure you were, ju- I'm sure you were justified. <laughs> Not really. It was just a irritation. Yeah. Because I get told that a lot in our neighborhood. Because a lot of them drive, like, Teslas and Priuses and electric cars that don't make sounds. And I have a big V8. And so I, they always think I'm speeding and barreling down the streets. Yeah. Like, I'm not. Like, you're just going to run over a little electric car like a speed bump. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is kind of embarrassing. That well, I think about flipping her off, but well, oh well. I liked the story. Made me feel better. Good. Yeah. So, and and just to clarify, you're not an honorary nasty person to me at all. Well, thank you. Yeah. So all those times I told you my alcoholism was your fault, it it wasn't. In case you didn't know that by now. Yeah. You're a pretty great person. So all those times that I like secretly ate ice cream when I was mad at you, those weren't your fault either. That was the alcohol. I just, I just ate out. I just ate ice cream because I wanted to. That was the alcohol. I don't blame you. So toward the end of my alcoholism, and I think towards the end of the drinking career of a lot of people, there's one more little aspect to this that I think is important to discuss. I didn't want to hurt you because I'm an evil person, but I definitely wanted to drag you into my pain sometimes. When it was, like I said, toward the end of my alcoholism, when the depression and anxiety had mounted to the point where drinking was becoming an inevitability for me, and it was just a matter of time, and I was starting to understand that, I was hurting so much so often that there were times where I blamed my alcoholism on you, I blamed my drinking on you, if you weren't such a bitch, Sherry, I wouldn't drink so much, things like that. And I didn't do it, again, out of meanness. I did it because I was hurting and I wanted you to hurt too. I guess you could categorize that as meanness. I don't know. But it, in my mind, in my recollection, it was definitely suffering. I wasn't like, 
hee hee, I'm going to launch this evil plan and be nasty to my wife. <laughs> I was smart. like, I was like, oh, I look at her and the empathy is gone. The compassion is gone. She doesn't care that I'm hurting anymore because she has lost all faith in me and most of any kind of love that she felt for me. And she's just numb to it all. So the only way I could get a reaction out of you was to try to drag you down into my pain with me. And that's a really diabolical part. I know you love the word diabolical. It's a really diabolical part of this disease of addiction. It's also, again, this is a very universal component. When we're at the end, when all else has failed, we just want, you know, I know it's a cliche, but misery loves company. And if I couldn't get you to come and go, oh, it's okay, Matt, you'll try again tomorrow. I know you're trying. I know you're trying. If I couldn't get you to come and do that, then I was going to drag you down into the pit of despair with me. Did it ever feel like that when I when I say that and I explain it that way? Does that make sense? Yes, it very much does. Why are you laughing? Inconceivable and the pit of despair. Uh, using all my big words today. <laughs> well, they're just from the Princess Bride. Oh, Princess Bride, yes, your favorite movie. <laughs> despair. Is, did I realize there's a line from the Princess yeah, Bride? And, you know, inconceivable, but that's obviously a word they use all the time. But I did, when you said that, I the imagined... The Intoxicated Podcast is now sponsored by <laughs> movies from 40 years ago. Rob Reiner. Um, but I did feel like, when you said that, though, the pit of despair, I did kind of feel like, in that movie, how he drags you down and there's this, like, ghostly, white, like, guy that's this maniacal person trying to torture somebody and I did kind of feel like you were dragging me down underground 100%. I know you often reference to the pit but that is it's kind of like in a place that nobody on the upper level nobody at ground level knows is even there Some and the- nobody like I'm sorry like no none of our neighbors would know that we ever like went to that deep dark place yeah and kind of testament to that some of the times when we would stay up all night arguing which that was a trend for us toward the end. It was a trend for us in early sobriety. It was a trend for us in medium sobriety, less often. But until very recently, we were still doing that, staying up all night arguing. And But when I was drinking and that would happen, it would definitely be like, in my mind, it would I'd be in this like all hope is lost kind of place. And I would just want you to stay there with me. And so if I stopped talking and let you go to sleep, I knew that you would be getting some peace And, you know, starting to slowly recover from the traumatic incident. Whereas if if we just stayed up arguing, we would both stay in the pit of despair together. It's awful. It's awful to think back on it. But it's even though, you know, when that was happening with frequency and when that was happening in active addiction, the worst of it was years and years ago now. I can still remember it like it was yesterday if I conjure up those memories. That's as bad as I, you know, really felt as a human. And I wanted you to feel it too. Not because I didn't love you, but because it was lonely. But I'm glad that that's behind us. Uh, I'm glad that things are going so much better and we're healing. And I'm glad that we're both able to look back on this with clarity now and try our best to express what it's like back when we were in it 
so that other people can know that they're not alone when they're feeling these same experiences, feeling these same emotions. You know, one of the things that's the most dangerous about this kind of gaslighting, this kind of, the reason this gets me so hot, so angry when I hear somebody say, you know, hey, spouse, my alcoholism is your fault because you don't give me enough grace or you're too bitchy. The reason that's so upsetting for me is because that's the kind of gaslighting that prevents a person from hearing their instincts and separating the good instincts away from the insecurities because it just amplifies the insecurities. It fills you up with, you know, I, I know I'm a good person. I know I'm doing my best. I know I'm in this awful alcoholic marriage. I'm trying to protect the kids. I'm trying to get help for my spouse. I'm trying to do all these good things. And then all of a sudden, you get pummeled over and over and over again with, this whole thing is your fault. This whole thing is your whole, is your fault, spouse. My drinking is your problem. And it fills you with this insecurity that r- removes your ability to see the, your instincts and continue to do the things you have to do to protect yourself, to protect your mental health, and to protect your children. And so that's why it's so dangerous. It's more than just, you know, kind of an evil twist on alcoholism. It it can really, really hurt people. And it can make the cycle continue into the next generation. And so separating instincts from insecurities and listening to and following those instincts, it is so important. That's what Echoes of Recovery is all about. Um, that's what we try so hard to help people do. We don't tell people what they should do. We don't tell people what decisions they should make in their alcoholic marriages. We don't tell them you should stick it out because marriage is sacred. We don't tell them you should leave because this person's gone too far. We just don't do that. What we do do, what we do do, is try to help people separate those insecurities from their instincts and follow their instincts. Know what you believe in your heart and don't believe the gaslighting. Boy, I got a lot of soapboxes on this topic, don't I? You do. I'm like an infomercial over here. <laughs> so I just want to close, Sherry, with you know, reaffirming the fact that coddling or giving grace, giving grace is a, it's just a popular phrase these days. I know lots of people that talk all the time about, you know, oh, I'm going to give this person grace because they're having a hard time. Or, you know, oh, you know, can't you can't you give me grace? Can't you be a forgiving person? Can't you have empathy in your heart? And honestly, the the phrase giving grace has gotten to a point where it it kinda irritates me. Well, and that, I feel like it's overused and it's, it's just and it's very taken out of trendy. Con- it's taken out of context in this scenario when you have this alcoholic situation that keeps happening and keeps happening and keeps happening. I mean, so for me, it doesn't even seem like it's a legitimate thing to ask for in this sort of situation. Yeah. Because having grace and mercy is for someone who's trying. And I don't feel like a lot, you know, that when you're asking for that and blaming your spouse, there isn't a recognition of trying. Well, and even if you are trying, um, I guess the point that I want to end on is giving grace isn't really what's going to help you be successful in your attempts at sobriety and your recovery from alcoholism. You know, 
for me to recognize the fact that I absolutely needed sobriety in my life. It was important. I had to get to a point where the pain was greater than any kind of glimpses of joy that I got from drinking. I had to recognize that the alcohol was causing the problems. And I was in tremendous pain and the pain had to stop. But the other thing that really helped me to quit when that time had come was the way you treated me. You didn't give me grace. You didn't coddle me anymore. You didn't want to hear my sad story about how, oh, I tried not to drink, but I drank anyway. And, oh, I tried to keep it in control, but instead of having two, I had 47 drinks. (laughs) And you didn't want to hear how bad I felt the next day and how much shame I was wallowing in. You didn't want to hear about the research I had done about brain chemistry and how I was learning about how to, you know, find sobriety and the tools I needed. You didn't want to hear about any of that. You just were done and you didn't care anymore. And that was the greatest gift you've ever given me. Truly. Your ambivalence toward my pain, coupled with the intensity of my pain, is what made me say, whoa, I got no options here. I either quit drinking or I lose everything. And it's when people are are being given grace or being coddled or being, what's the word again? I keep forgetting. God, it's not that hard a word. Enabled. Enabled. (laughs) This guy works in recovery all day long. (laughs) He can't remember those basic words. Um, It's when people are being enabled that they they are going to continue to find an excuse to drink, continue to find a way to drink because the pain that's required to make you stop, it isn't painful enough. So thank you. Thank you for being done with me. Thank you for giving up on me more or less and uh, just trying to figure out your way out. That was the, the last little push I needed to get me over the hump, to uh, commit to and really, really commit to permanent sobriety. I love you for it. Now, good news for you, Sherry. Um, It's kind of middle of the late afternoon, early evening right now. And I have gotten so worked up and talked so much that I am out of words. (laughs) So you get to enjoy peace (laughs) for the rest of the evening. Isn't that nice? That's funny. Well, to all of our friends out there, the one specifically that we mentioned that's part of Echoes of Recovery, and anyone else who's listening that's being blamed for the alcoholism of someone else, it is not your fault. The more, you know, confidently you believe that, the better off you will be, and frankly, the better off your alcoholic will be too. Mm-hmm. Don't don't take that bullshit. Yeah. Don't All right. get sucked into that. That's right. Love you, Sherry. Love you too. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.